Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you writer J. Michael Straczynski. I write 10 to 12 hours a day, every day, except New Year's Day, my birthday, and Christmas Day. He's such a prolific talent. His work spans pretty much every form of media there is. Film, TV, comic books, novels. He's even branching into web series. Mr. Straczynski created the beloved sci-fi show Babylon 5, as well as Sense8 for Netflix. In the comic books, he reinvented Spider-Man, Thor, and Superman, amongst many, many others. And on the big screen, he wrote Clint Eastwood's The Changeling, and he helped adapt World War Z. Time for Odin's son. The old ways are done. You'd stand giving speeches while Asgard falls. What worries me is that you have stopped looking for my son. Why should we that be looking for someone we've already found? You are an old man and a fool! Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. You're a liar and a troublemaker, and if you ask me, you got no business walking the streets of Los Angeles. Drink, I like it. I know, it's great, right? Another! He's done all this despite admitting to almost sabotaging his own career multiple times. How did you start in the business? I've actually started numerous times that have a tendency to firebomb my own career on a regular basis. I think it's important to do that from time to time. I started off as a um, writing plays that were produced locally when I was 17 years old. Um, I always knew I was going to be a writer and began preparing from the moment I could actually read a book like age, age four or five. So my first four years were wasted. But after that, <laughs> I began preparing to become a writer. I knew just coming into it. And the thing about it is, I come from ridiculously poor roots. Um, no connections to the business at all. Um, we moved my first 17 years 21 times. Wow. Um, because my father had a unique economic philosophy. Blow in a town, run up a lot of bills and split. <laughs> so we'd be in a different city, you know, guys would show up in the morning with badges and bills and at night the U-Haul backs up and we go somewhere else, in New Jersey to Illinois, to Texas, to California. And <clears throat> guys who were in my neighborhood, guys who I grew up with, were never expected to do anything. We, we were considered dead-enders. Either you end up working in a mechanic shop when you got older or you end up in jail. Those are your options. So when I said I want to be a writer, they all kind of laughed, you know as would I have done. Um, <laughs> but after studying and studying and studying when I was 17, the engine turned over in my head. What had happened was I was, I, I, I had gotten most of what writing involved with, but voice and, and style, the difference between voice and style was eluding me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't figure out what the distinction was. I was reading a book by H.P. Lovecraft, mm -hmm. whose style was way over the top. And it was so big that I understood suddenly what that was. I realized that voice is who you are, the style is the clothes you wear. So you can adopt a different style, but your voice within that style mm -hmm. is always the same. Mm -hmm. And when I realized how that worked, the engine in my head turned over, and suddenly I, that day I wrote two short stories, a couple of poems. The next day I wrote two more short stories, 
and began having them sold locally as little articles or magazines and newspapers and began working in plays and getting those produced and was a reporter about 10 years. I actually did pretty well at that and ended up going from LA Times to um, LA Reader to Time Incorporated. Mm -hmm. Um, which is what got me out of journalism. It's a whole different story for a different time, but I left that fireball my career in reporting, went into television and animation, where I worked on shows like, pardon the expression, He-Man and Masters of the Universe, <laughs> Shira, Real Ghostbusters, and others, and then, went, and then fireball my career in animation, went from there to live action, and was on that up through Jeremiah for Showtime, which was a hideous experience. I had a firebomb my career in television and went from there to, to films and did that. Now I'm circled back to television again. So I failed upward is the answer to the question. <laughs> Embrace your inner failure. The seeds for Mr. Straczynski's comic book work started years back as an unhappy child who found solace and connection in the pages of Superman. And as he explains, he might have even received some of Superman's bravery. I grew up being the, the geek of the schools that I went to. Um, but for me, in all the comics I read as a kid, Superman was kind of it for me. Because uh, coming from a background of poor and uh, uh, no opportunities and horrific family, Superman could do anything. He could fly and he could, you know, and nothing could hurt him. And I learned my ethics from comic books and Superman in particular. So. For me, it's, it became not just you know, a fun thing to read, it became a survival mechanism. A few years ago, uh, I was at a um, comic book convention in Chicago. And everybody like the Comic-Cons and the big ones, like San Diego or whatever else. The dealer's rooms are like, you know, from here to New Jersey. They're just really, really long. And you know, the guy is selling at booths artwork and tchotchkes and expensive stuff and cheap stuff and just general guard variety crap. And I'm in this row of booths in Chicago dealer's room at the convention, and I hear someone yell, stop him. <laughs> and I look down the row, and there's a guy like in his 20s who just grabbed a bunch of expensive artwork, like tens of thousands of dollars worth of art, and was making a run for it. And the crowd, like the Red Sea, they parted, you know. And I brought him down. <laughs> Tackled him like a gazelle. <laughs> brought him down, the guy who caught up with me, who, whose booth it was, we held him for the cops to show up. And afterward, uh, that taking him away, and the guy who runs the convention, Mike, Mike Sangiancoma, walks up and says, why did you do that? You could have been seriously hurt. And I took him back to where I'd been standing, under a 10-foot tall cutout of Superman. <laughs> I said, how could I stand in front of that and do nothing? And Spider-Man would be even better, given the mythology of that, but it was Superman. So. Mr. Straczynski doesn't shy away from potentially alienating hardcore comic fans for the sake of an original emotion-based tale. He boldly gave Thor a makeover by bringing the Norse god and his entire kingdom of Asgard to the fantastical world of Oklahoma. Oklahoma where the wind comes. If this sounds familiar, it's because he also helped write the first Thor movie. I had been <clears throat> writing for Marvel Comics for a while, and they wanted to bring back Thor, who had been gone for you know a few years, and nobody else wanted to get near the character. They offered it to Neil Gaiman, he ran like hell. They offered it to Mark Millar, he ran like hell. And I'm like, I, I wanted it. I actually want, give it, give it, I, I want it. 
<laughs> and so they said, all right, give it to Joe. And the problem was that no one knew what to do with the character. Because he doesn't seem to fit anywhere else. He comes from this tradition of very faux Shakespearean dialogue. You have no idea what you're dealing with. Uh, Shakespeare in the park? Doth mother know you wear as her drapes? And what do you do with Asgard? And so they gave it to me and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, first off, main thing is I want to move Asgard to Oklahoma. Uh and he looked at me as if I had three heads and feathers. <laughs> which I was wearing that day, but that's a different story. Okay. Um, and I said, why? And I said, Iron Man next to Thor, not much of a power difference. Thor next to an ordinary person makes him more godlike, but also makes him more human. Plus, visually, it's really cool. You, see, you go to Oklahoma to the flatlands, it's like flat, 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 Asgard, flat, flat, flat. You know? <laughs> and I'm all about contrast. And so they said, none of them having wanted it anyway, sure, go out and have fun. You know? um, we'll, we'll see you on the way down the Titanic. Uh, so I did it and really focused strongly on the characters. I reimagined re how Thor spoke. I made it more, not Shakespearean, um, but um, formalized. If you think, um, who wrote The Ladies Not For Burning? Christopher Fry. Mm -hmm. that, that sort of thing and more accessible to a modern audience, but still formalized, and created relationships with the local townsfolk in often very funny ways. I mean, they wanted to send him some letters, and there's no address for Asgard, so you have one of the folks from the town comes out and with a, puts a mailbox you know, by Asgard, one Asgard road, you know. <laughs> and the cops tell him, you can't just put Asgard in the middle of this, you don't own this land. So with an incantation, he rises it four feet above the ground. So it's not on the ground anymore. It's four feet above the ground, you know, <laughs> just to mess with them. And what, to their surprise, happened was that the book became one of the top five sellers for Marvel and stayed that way for the entire time that I worked on it. There wasn't a lot of action in it. There wasn't a lot of big, huge events. Mm -hmm. It was just a strong character story. Mm -hmm. And people reacted to that, and they, and they responded to it. That, that's what makes the character work, is those, yeah. those small moments. One of the things that I did in, in the, the book was, as Asgard is now by this small Oklahoma town, um, we see how they inter interact. And at one point, you know, the, the town council asked, do you have indoor plumbing? And they said, no, we just throw it over the wall. Um, but my favorite scene, there's a, a guy who's a, a chef cook in a, in a diner who begins falling in love with this Asgardian woman who is just a goddess. And she likes him a lot also. And, and he, but he keeps thinking, how is this ever going to work? You know? yeah. And he's in the diner, and Donald Blake, who's the, the alter ego for Thor, is there. And <clears throat> he's lamenting this. And, he, and his, his dad used to say to him, you know, a fish can love a bird, but where would they build a house together? <laughs> and and Don, Don says, by the edge of the river. Aww. And that's when the guy decides to pursue it. And that's hit the template for the movie. They wanted to put that setting into more of a small town. The, the outfit that he wears here is based on the outfit that I and the artist uh -huh. came together and put together. So they so said, we want you to be you know, involved with the film. I, I had an outstanding obligation to another film, so I said, I can do the outline for you, okay. but I can't do the entire script. So I came on board, did the outline for them, and they proceeded to go off from there. And of course, the great irony is that Ken, Ken Brana, who directed this, wanted me to do a cameo in this. Like, oh, Really? 
Yeah. <laughs> Bad idea. So I, I show up just to be one of a bunch of guys in line, and he says, I want you to actually act in the scene. Said, no, you don't. <laughs> Trust me, you don't. He said, I want you to... So there's a scene where a red truck, after the, after the hammer's been thrown out of Asgard, and craters in the ground, yeah. a red truck yeah. drives up, and a guy gets out and tries to pick it up. And Yeah, I, I said, you know, despite all evidence to the contrary, Ken decided that I could act, so there, you know, there you are. The fans' reaction to Thor pales in comparison to how they responded to what he did to Spider-Man. During the storyline One More Day, Mr. Straczynski not only broke up Peter and Mary Jane, he erased their marriage and their entire backstory from existence. That one still hurts. But like with all his work, he used the fictional web-slinger as a response to what's happening in the real world. The difference between creating your own characters or working for like in-house established like Thor, Superman, or whoever else, is that when you're writing your own characters, you can go as far as you want to go. You can make them terrible people, you can have terrible things happen to them. I, I did Spider-Man for seven years. And during that time, you know that you can go from here to there, but you really can't go much further because you will you know, break the equipment. And, and they hand you this character, it's a trust. We think you're going to serve the character well, don't hurt it. You know? So you really do have, I wouldn't say mittens on, but certainly the, the fingerless gloves, you know, there's partial mittens. Um, and you also realize that you have a much larger responsibility with that character uh, because they're a known icon. So for instance, I was writing Spider-Man when 9-11 hit. And Marvel called me up and said, we need to respond to this. And Peter Parker is the obvious choice because he lives there. He's a New Yorker. That's how we identify him. We need you to write an issue that somehow addresses 9-11. Like, swell. Yeah. And <clears throat> for days, I kept trying. And I called him and said, I, I know the words are in the dictionary somewhere, but what order to put them in and which ones to use is eluding me. And so we'll give it one more day and think about it some more. We were shooting Jeremiah, um, TV series for Showtime, in Vancouver, and I was in the producer's trailer on, on location, and I had this notepad in front of me, and I wrote down, there are no words. And another sentence unfurled itself to me. And in 45 minutes, this prose poem meditation, and it's I've never written in before, emerged that I can't really even take credit for. And I sent it off exactly as written to Marvel. And Axel Alonso, who's the editor at the Marvel, you know, closed his door and read it and was in tears um, for the right reason for a change. And when that book came out, the New York Times covered it and firemen shared it to fire stations. It was used in schools as a teaching device about 9-11. And I got letters from guys who were there and firemen who were there who said what your book captured was the emotion of that moment. He said people don't understand that what we needed the most as we were working in the ruins was shoes because the heat from below was so strong that our, our souls kept melting. And I thought what a metaphor that is, you know. And when you have 
a character like Spider-Man, you can address those kinds of important things because he is an icon. Whereas your individual characters that are not going to be as well known probably can't do that. His writing on the Superman comic was equally as bold, making Clark Kent more human in an attempt to relate to the majority of us who just can't solve our problems with superpowers. How is your approach towards Earth One Superman? It comes from a number of different things, but probably the, the seminal image that guided me for that book, the first one in particular, was on the New York Times bestseller for like half a year. Again, this happened while I was still working up in Vancouver on Jeremiah. And every Wednesday I would go down and get my comics fix downtown. Everybody been to Vancouver? Anybody know Vancouver at all? <clears throat> There's a street called uh, Granville, which is where folks of your tribe, you know, guys and gals in their 20s, tend to congregate, you know, and younger, you know, 15, 18. It's, it's that age from 15 to 20, you know. And you see them sitting on curbs, the panhandling, asking for money, hanging out, you know, drinking. Uh, my favorite guy there had this sign he held in front of him said, you know, need money for weed. I thought that was really honest of him, you know. <laughs> and when I went to get my comic books, what I discovered was every once in a while, one of those guys would come into the comic book store and walk down the row of garishly colored books, his eyes hungry for something he could relate to. And he got to the end, and he see light in his eyes go out. And he would go to leave. And sometimes I would follow him out and say, what happened just now? What's going on? And he said, there's nothing there that's it's like the world I live in. you know." And when time came to do Superman, I thought, let me create a character for that tribe who don't know where they fit in, don't know where they're going. Clark Kent, early 20s, fresh out of college, coming to Metropolis, what does he want to do with his life? I'm not sure he wants to be Superman. He said he could do anything he wanted to do and be profoundly successful at it. But he has to figure that process out. And I thought, let's focus on that. And that became a large part of it. Um, I've introduced a character in the second volume who is his next door neighbor who works as an escort. And people were at first, you know, horrified by the fact that Superman, that Clark Kent was friends with a hooker. And he wasn't trying to get her out of life. He knew she wanted to get out. That wasn't an issue. The question is, do I respect you for who you are while you're trying to do this? You know? And they became really good friends. And there were a lot of folks who were up in arms about that. But in the third book, we make that work pretty well. So I tried to look at this from a different point of view and, and addressing the concerns of economics, of direction, of, of sexuality. Things that you can just not hit too hard because you're so ready for a certain audience, but enough to make it a fresher approach to the character. But it all started with the image of this guy in a hoodie, which was the, took me on the first issue, first book, and wearing the hoodie, which also freaked everybody out. Walking into that store and not saying something he could relate to and feeling what that need was. Mr. Straczynski has been a TV writer for over 30 years, from He-Man to the reboot of Twilight Zone to Walker, Texas Ranger, starring the one and only Chuck Norris. But his work as a creator and executive producer of the sci-fi series Babylon 5 truly showed his mettle, as he wound up writing almost every episode of the show. No small feat, particularly for a program that had over 100 episodes. Babylon 5 was really kind of a one-man show to a large extent. For the first two years, we had freelance writers for half of it. 
And it got so convoluted that I had to sort of do all the writing myself because I just couldn't separate it out by saying, this episode ends here and that one begins here, there's your assignment. It, it was the first series to do a five-year arc. We were the first ones to do that. And because I needed to figure it out as I, I did it, it was hard to assign that episode. So I ended up writing, out of 110 episodes, 92, as well as show writing the darn thing. So that was kind of a one-man show. Whereas Sensei was the three of us sitting in a room and just chewing through all the details and all the background and where these characters come from, who are they. And we ended up um, covering the walls with these boards, metallic um, mag magnetized boards, that had three by five cards on them with the, going this way with who the characters were, then their backgrounds, who they were, where they came from, their fathers, their parents. So, and this way across was their individual arcs. And we did, over the period of like a couple of months, we finally worked this thing out that everything laid out day by day what, and time by time what the whole thing was. And then I'm looking at this construction one day and I went, oh crap. And Lana said, what? I said, time zones. I said, they're all connected telepathically. Mm -hmm. And if one of our characters in San Francisco is in trouble, the character who was in Seoul can't help them because they're asleep. Mm -hmm. So we now had to redo the entire thing to incorporate time zones. And they kind of hated me from that point on for, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, and there was a lot more travel involved in doing, doing Sense8. We, went to, we shot the show on location, as opposed to b 5 which is all done on stage, we, in, in um, San Francisco, Chicago, London, Mexico City, Berlin, Iceland, Mumbai, Nairobi, and Seoul. Wow. No stage work at all. Uh, it, was, it was quite an experience. So it was pretty much as different as you can get from each other on every possible level. Mr. Straczynski's current Netflix show, Sense8, is a collaboration with the Wachowskis, the innovators behind the Matrix trilogy. Despite the show's massive scope and globe-trotting locations, the show spawned from an intimate and emotional central theme. We worked on what the story was going to be and wrote the first three episodes uh, on spec. Took it out, and our first meeting was at Netflix, and we you know, figured, okay, fine, that went well. Let's go to the next meeting, and they called to take it off the market and said, we're going to give you the budget, go make the show. The, although the, con the concept, the premise of Sense8, okay, what the idea is, Lana and I particularly are big believers in the notion of community. The problem we have as a culture right now is that we have been you know, marginalized and tribalized and fashionalized to within an inch of our lives. If the country were divided geographically as it is politically right now, you'd be hearing gunfire in the distance. And we wanted to talk about the fact that whatever your gender identity is or your sexuality or your ethnic background, that the common coin of our shared humanity is stronger than all of it, stronger than what divides us. And we wanted to do a story on a global scale that was about community. And one of the things that entered into the discussion was you know, I, have, I have friends, three dubious words, but I do have, I have friends, who will, when they're in different parts of the world, they'll all queue up a DVD at the same time of a movie, and then as the movie plays, they will text back and forth with each other about what they're seeing. And they're sharing that experience, even though they're in different parts of the world. So I said, what about, you know, characters who become telepathically linked to each other, and suddenly there's someone in your head who knows everything that you know about yourself, and you, only you can see them, but no one else can. And that person knows your secrets, your background, your skills, your abilities. And there's eight characters who share this hive mind. And to me, as, as a writer, what's appealing about that is 
I have a theory that there are five kinds of truth. The truth to tell the casual strangers and people you meet. The truth to tell to your friends and to your family. The truth to tell to only to a few people in your, in your entire life. The truth you tell to yourself. And the truth you won't even admit to yourself. <laughs> and we want to do a story about truth number five. Because suddenly someone's in your head and has access to your secrets, and our secrets are what define us in many respects. So that became the core of it, and then we built out the universe from there. Despite years of success in television, when he went out with his feature screenplay, The Changeling, he was considered a newer writer. Fortunately, he went over two titans of the industry, which ensured the true story would reach the big screen. Ron Howard bought the script to direct initially for himself. He couldn't do it, brought in Clint. And how the town works is that your director comes on, they give you notes, and you come back with a draft. So they finally said, Clint wants to meet you. So I went down to his office at Warner Brothers on the lot and comes in, we're sitting on the couch. And the funny thing is, Clint doesn't really look at you a whole lot. So we're sitting like this, he's looking that way the entire time I'm talking to him, he's talking to me. I'm thinking... And finally we're done with the meeting and I say, you know, do you want any revisions? Because obviously you may have some thoughts, I can change a few things. And suddenly he looks at me and it's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and you remember what your colon is there for. And he says, you know how many movies I've made? A lot. <laughs> a lot, that's what I thought. Point is, he said, I've gotten more phone calls about this script than any other script I've ever produced saying, don't screw it up. My job is to not screw it up. Don't change a word. Okay. The, the ultimate irony of a changeling was that we went to Cannes and we missed winning the Palme d'Or by one vote, we discovered, from a, a French critic who didn't believe the story was true. He said, police would not handle someone in this fashion. Obviously not from here. Um, and Clint called me, because then the story had, based on a true story and the credit, and, and he said, half of what he said was un unrepeatable, but what the, the gist of it was, sit down with the Universal Attorneys, go through all of your notes with them, show them where every single scene of the script comes from to get a true story, not based on a true story on the screen from now on. So I sat down with the Universal Attorneys and I had done a year's worth plus of research. I had like 2,500 pages of documentation about that story. And I showed them every single case where every single line came from a transcript or a hearing document or a court record or a hospital record. And we got a true story, which has very rarely ever been awarded to anybody. He's still pissed off about it. After working as a writer for over 20 years, the changeling turned Mr. Straczynski into a Hollywood big shot, a role he was less than thrilled to portray. After being in television for like 15 years, I wrote Changeling, mm -hmm. right. which got all this attention, and suddenly I was invited to all these studio meetings, and most of them didn't know that I had been in television before. They thought, this is my first script. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I became this up-and-coming screenwriter. I'm, so I have this reception with like eight guys in their 20s and me. You know? <laughs> the best part of it was after Changeling became Changeling, I ended up going to, to all the different studios, they all wanted to meet me and see who this you know, Yeti was that had just done this. And I walk into this one studio, visualize, if you will, a long conference table, and along the sides of the conference table, 
There's a president, vice presidents of production, development, yes men, flunkies, plenipotentiaries, toadies, the whole catastrophe. <laughs> and the end of the table is Mr. Big, who runs the studio. And he begins giving me his background. I ran Paramount for two years. I was in charge of Fox for three years. I just had a, a production for this studio for two years. I ran this studio for three years, gave me the whole litany, and then sat back to see my reaction. And I said, so what you're saying is you can't hold a job. <laughs> <laughs> and the president, the vice president of production, the development people, the flunkies, the plant plants, the yes men, the toadies, went white. <laughs> Mr. Big took a moment to realize what I just said and started laughing. Of course. And could not stop laughing. Because most people who walked into that room did so from a position of fear. Right. The most important thing you can do as writers is never, ever, ever be afraid. There's nothing they can do to you. And he, because I was not afraid of him, he respected me. And actually, I walked out the door with an assignment. So you know, <laughs> never, ever, ever, ever let him see you being afraid. Before they worked together on Sense8, J. Michael Straczynski and the Wachowskis were mutual fans of each other. This led to perhaps his hardest gig ever, doing a page-one rewrite of a feature film in one week. Uh, for all you non-writers out there, that is literally impossible. They actually were, were fans of mine. They were Babylon 5 fans and like my comics work. I didn't know that until I got the invitation to see the last Matrix movie at the Disney Center downtown. And I didn't, my lawyer said, we got this invitation, do you know anybody involved with Matrix? I said, no, but I'm happy to go, I love the movies. So I go up to the Disney Theater, I'm up in the balcony, and this couple sits next to me, and uh, one woman says to me, what, what do you do with this? I said, I have nothing, I'm just here to see the movie, I, and this is who I am. She leaned over to Lana, it's the Babylon 5 guy. Mm -hmm. And when I just shot up out of the chair and came over and began talking Spider-Man and Babylon 5 and all this stuff, and they were trying to run the movie, and they're like, <laughs> We're talking Babylon 5 and comic books. <laughs> and so we became friends after that. Uh -huh. And we worked um, uh, a few years later together on a Ninja Assassin, okay. which, um, not a terribly deep movie, because it's, well, Ninja Assassin. Um, but what's funny about that is, and this is kind of, again, where the, the effortless approach to writing pays off. I didn't know they were working on Ninja Assassin until I got a phone call from Lana saying, we're in a bind, can you come see it? So this is on a Monday. They come the next day on Tuesday, and they said, we are six weeks from camera on this movie, and the script doesn't work. We need to have a complete rewrite, fade in to fade out. Can you do it for us? I said, you're my friends, whatever you want me to do, I'm happy to do it. When do you have to have it? They said, it has to go out to actors' agents on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> this is Tuesday. <laughs> So I said, they said, we know how fast you are. Can, can you pull this off? And I said, I'll have it on Friday. Went home, fired up the coffee maker. <laughs> I did the math of how many pages per hour that would have to be. Oh, my God. And how many hours I could sleep each day, which is three. <laughs> and I just made sure that every hour I hit that number, and, and I didn't go to sleep until I hit that page count for the day. And I would doze at the, at the desk, uh -huh. put my pillow on the, on the keyboard and nap get up, have a cup of coffee, keep on going. And on Friday morning, I, I emailed off the script, um, which Warner's had no notes on, which scared the hell out of me. Because if Warner would have liked something, you gotta worry. So, and they shot it. Mr. Straczynski gave our students some great advice about writing. For one, read a lot of screenplays or TV scripts. And the good news there, so many of them are available online legally. So you literally have no excuse for not reading them. The, the best thing you can do, 
seriously is to read scripts. Read, because when you're watching the film, what works is often invisible. You can see it on the page, but you can't always see it on the screen. Uh, and particularly, look at, not only to read the scripts for, but look at really, really bad films. Because what works in a good film is often invisible, but what is crappy in a bad film is pretty obvious sometimes. <laughs> you can learn more from seeing a bad film sometimes than a good film, because it's like the magician, how the hell did, I can see what they did wrong over there. Um, and just write every day. The, what you have to become is transparent as a writer, and write all the crap out of your system. It's like, writing is like digging for oil. You have to pump out the mud, the yuck, the dinosaur bones, the water, and then you get to the good stuff. The more you write, whatever it is that you're writing, do it. Because what you want to get down to is your authentic voice. <coughs> writing is nothing more than talking on the page in your own natural voice. When you hang out with the writers a lot, you learn that they write the way they talk and talk the way they write. There's this notion, somehow writing should sound literary, it sounds a certain way. No, writing is your natural voice. What you have to sell, what all of you have to sell, each of you stands on a piece of turf, piece of ground, that no one else stands on. No one else has your background, your experience, your knowledge, your information. No one else has that lens in the middle of your head that was formed by your experiences. If a diamond has value because there are a few of them, how much more rare and valuable is your particular perspective? When you hire a writer, you're hiring them for their point of view. You're hiring them for how they see the world and how that story will come through that filter as a result. You can give 10 writers the same basic idea, you'll get 10 very different stories. So whatever you can do to, to just write your brains out nonstop, to get out of your own way and become transparent, which only can happen by every day writing, 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 writing. I, I started writing nonstop when I was 17 years old. I've never stopped every day. And in my, the first three or four years, my stuff sucked. It wasn't the smell, it was the burning of the eyes. It was that bad, you know? And eventually, I wrote out the crap and got to the good stuff. I'm still writing out some crap in my system. There's still some left over there. I'm, to this day, I'm still working on it. But the more you can get those words out of your system and learn to just be transparent and just, here's what it is. There's trying to write and there's writing. Effortless, joyful, fun. That's where you have to get. No matter what material he approaches, be it Thor, a ninja assassin, or the changeling's harrowing tale of a mother losing her son, Mr. Straczynski comes at the story from the exact same place. To me, writing is all about emotion. It's, it's ultimately what it comes down to. I don't care how good your plot is, or your effects, or your action sequences. If you don't care about the characters, you have got nothing. People may not remember, you know, all the whaling technology that was discussed in Moby Dick, but you remember Ahab. Um, for me, it, it it's all starts and ends with character. Uh, and my writing process is built around that in a kind of a weird way. If you want, you want the secret to how to write, the, the real the real deal. Don't tell anyone I told you this. It's, you know. Imagine your best friend for a second. If you haven't got a best friend, borrow one from the person next to you. <laughs> Walking across the living room at night, the lights are off, and they bang their shin on the coffee table. Now you know your friend. You know exactly what your friend's going to say when that happens. You're going to have to work at it. 
You have to think about it, you just know, and you could write it down. Writing is exactly the same. It is getting to know the characters so well that whatever you drop them into, you lay back and you write down what they do. It's very Zen-like that way. You, know, you don't, it, it's, it's not supposed to be homework. It's not supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be fun. And by focusing on the character, let them do the work for you, it becomes effortless. And it keeps the character always at the center of the story. Um, I worked with um, Jim Cameron uh, a little while back, working on a Forbidden Planet remake. And he said one of the smartest things I've ever heard. He said he used to think that writing science fiction was about writing familiar characters in unfamiliar settings. Mm -hmm. It took me 10 years to realize I was wrong. It's about familiar relationships in unfamiliar settings. So uh, Terminator 2 is a father-son relationship even though it's not. Mm -hmm. Aliens is a mother-daughter story even though it's not. You may not be able to buy into you know, alien civilizations or strange futuristic events, but the emotion of what a father-son or mother-daughter relationship is will bring you in every time. So I always believe in going for the emotions first and foremost as the gateway drug and pulling back from there into what the plot is. Another piece of advice from J. Michael Straczynski. Learn how to take feedback without letting your ego get in the way of ideas that can help develop the material. You have to be honest. You have to step outside your own ego and say, does the note make sense? If it does, do it. There's nothing wrong with doing it. You, you, you get the bask in the reflected glow of the smartness of that note. If the note is wrong because your heart says it is wrong, because your logic says it is wrong, you don't do it. And you tell them that. Or you lie. <laughs> I used to do this. Here's how, not, I wouldn't say not bright, but um, less in tune sometimes the executives are at studios, where an example would be someone says to you, okay, in your script, we have them coming in the door. I think they should come in the window because that's more dramatic. You know, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. I'm fine. You wait six weeks, turn in the script, and you tell them, you know that note you had where instead of having them come in the window, you have to come in the door? You were absolutely right with that. <laughs> it works every time. They just want to be heard. They just want to earn their salary, you know? And, and lying is a completely moral point of view when you're working with some of these guys. Um, but other times, if, if, if you disagree with it and your heart says this is wrong, you, you have to fight. You have to, you have to be a pain in the ass. I cultivated that from a very early age to just say no if I thought it was wrong. But just, just be honest with yourself. Oftentimes, it's getting more to the spirit of the note than the heart than the actual letter of the yes. note. Something in you is bothering, and this is bothering you. You're saying cut this sequence, or are you actually saying that the sequence is too long? Because if, if that's actually the concern, I can take out this part over here, which is not essential, as opposed to the point you want to take out, which is the whole core of the scene. Yeah. And lastly, don't worry about what the audience will think. Belief in your material is what will see you through this industry. I think that the moment you begin thinking too much about the audience, you're doomed. Um, it has to be sort of that interests you. It, it, because we all contain within us, as I mentioned before, the same basic elements, we all want happiness, love, you know, better future for our kids. If you write something that's true for you, the odds are it'll be true for everybody else at some level. The moment you think what you should be writing about, then you've, you've lost that. And you, what, you, what you write will be driven by the market, driven by outside forces rather than your own heart. And again, 
As I mentioned earlier, the only thing you have of value to sell is your point of view. The audience changes. You can write to a trend right now, but that trend started four years ago when the development process began those films, and you're now four years behind the times. Whereas your, your heart will always be on time, because your heart's right into the culture right now. Um, yeah, never, the worst that'll happen is it won't sell. Write the next one. That's what a writer does. You write it, you put it on the market, it sells or it doesn't sell, you write the next one, and the next one, and the next one. You know, a lot of aspiring writers who work for 10 years on a script. And the problem is you only learn the lessons that one script had to teach you. The more you write, the more tools you acquire for your toolbox. You all start in the same place with a pair of rusty pliers and a screwdriver. It's all you got. You can only make so much with that. The more you write, the more scripts you write, the more tools you get for your toolbox. It's like you can make more interesting things with that. But that box only opens up with your own heart. The moment you come up to the outside of it and say, I think I should be writing about this, because that's what the audience wants, the box won't open. So write your heart. The audience, if they believe in you, will find you. Sensate is that kind of a show. It's a show driven not by plot or by gimmick. A lot of science fiction shows about the gimmick, the gadget, the mission, the team. It's about what William Faulkner called the human heart, the conflict with itself. That's, that's the only thing that's worth writing about in the long run, only thing worth the sweat and the blood and the grief. And we sat there for days asking ourselves the most intimate questions. Lana Wachowski, who worked on this project with me, is transgendered. And one of our characters is transgendered. So we got into some, into the tall grass, some of our conversations. And there were times we said, do we really risk going there? Do we want to go that far with this? Because it's really intimate stuff. You've, you've seen a bunch of it. And it works and it has galvanized the internet in ways that no other Netflix show has ever done. For those of you who don't know this show, we, we, we were locking 200 tweets a minute at one point. We were just like, oh my God, look at the show. Um, by staying true to the human heart. If you're gonna be a writer, what are you selling? Are you selling your point of view or are you selling what you think people want? If it's the latter, get the hell out. If it's the former, stay in. Mr. Straczynski's Q&A showed he's as great a teacher as he is a writer. So thank you to novelist, TV writer, producer, comic book writer, publisher, and screenwriter, J. Michael Straczynski. And thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated and produced by Tova Leiter, co-moderated by Cricket Rumley. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Tova Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. Special thanks to our events department, Sasha Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time. No, Christian, it's not just a comic book, it's Spider-Man. Mary Jane, Peter, their marriage was perfect. And you know what they did? You know what he did? He ended it. And it wasn't just, oh, they got divorced. No, none of that. He erased their marriage and their entire backstory from existence. It doesn't make sense.